for launch in three, two, one. Is it a crucial stage? It's not because of foreign wars we wage. It's more to do with the colors blue and red. Too many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? The Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. Politicians build a new world order. Today's broadcast of Tapping to the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am your ever so humble and mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live tonight from historic Rome County, Tennessee. And we are indeed live on WCET Radio in Columbia, South Carolina. We are live on the last frequency, and we are live on the Vera Network on TunedIn.com. So if you're listening anywhere else, well, you're hearing a, a rebroadcast or the podcast. But if you're listening there, this is live. And uh, it is Friday night. It happens to be December 12th. So we are, well, we're knee deep into the family holiday season. And we are going strong. I, I want to invite anybody who's listening to hop on over to uh, MeWe.com and uh, look up the Last Frequency group and be, become part of the chat tonight. Uh, ordinarily, we'll have a few folks pop in before too much longer, so hope to see you guys there. In the meanwhile, let's go ahead and jump right into things. Uh, before I get into the first hour topics, I want to let you know what we call a tease in the business. Uh, we've got Mark Mix coming up 
in the second hour, and we'll be uh, talking to him right off the top of the second hour. So you guys will want to hear that conversation. In the meanwhile, I guess we'll start with what seems to be the biggest talk-worthy conversation going on, uh, whether you're in conservative media, uh, leftist media, entertainment media, and that is, of course, Yay, a.k.a. Kanye West. Uh, man, oh man, if you have missed it completely, he went on the Alex Jones show, and he really, really said some things that I'm kind of hoping, I, I know, I know that he's got the mantic depressive thing going on, I know he's been off the meds for a while, we've talked about this already, he's in a mantic spiral, but I really, really hope that at least some of what he's doing is intentional. I hope some of this is to generate conversation because otherwise he is really off the rails right now. And it feels like some people are around him just to try and, and use him. That's what it looks like. I hope that's not the case. If, if you happen to be a major white supremacist guy and you're latching on you need to leave yay alone he's not going to if you happen to be milo yiannopoulos milo a guest that i have gotten to to speak to in person a, a conversation that i thought was a pretty good conversation a guy that i would have never thought would be doing this kind of thing he's rolling uh with yay right now part of the issue part of the problem latching on and Here's my real concern. Ultimately, Kanye West right now is going through a mental issue. All right? There, there's no question. There's no doubt. Instead of heavily criticizing, instead of going all in on, ooh, you're just so anti-Semitic, or going all in of, we must defend Jay, we need to let this man go get some of the actual help he needs. I feel bad about even discussing this as a topic to a degree, but we need to for two reasons. Not because of the condition that Ye is currently in. And trust me, the only reason I'm saying Ye right now instead of Kanye is because it took me a while practicing it because I kept trying to say in my head. Because uh, when, I, when I see the name, I want to say Ye because that's what that looks like to me. Ye, it's Ye, but no, it's Ye. Anyway. What we need to do is make sure that we talk about two topics. Number one, how is the media covering this? The media wants to blow this way out of proportion. Now, it's hard to imagine that there's such a thing at this point. If you have not seen any of the footage, have not heard any of the audio from Ye's appearance on the Alex Jones show, then brace yourself. He said a lot of things that were completely off the rails. He, he declared himself to be a Nazi. He said that he loves Hitler, so that Hitler did a lot of good things. He gave Hitler credit for creating highways, which is historically inaccurate, <laughs> and for creating microphones. Uh, I've heard some people reference Hitler as being the father of modern genetics. Uh, also not true. He employed other people that did some of those things. Hitler didn't do it. But we live in a time where most people can universally agree 
The Nazis were not the good guys. When he says these things, though, when he declares himself this, that in and of itself could just be flame-throwing, uh, what, what's the word here, just you know, seeking attention. Here's how I'm going to get my name everywhere because everybody's going to be talking about me, and hey, that part is working. But then when you see him actually uh, – he brought in a net, and he brought in a bottle of Yahoo, and he starts talking about Benjamin Netanyahu, and he does like this little squeaky Elmo voice <laughs> and claimed to have had no idea who Benjamin Netanyahu was before that and does this little play acting that – no, I, I, I just, like I said, I keep hoping that this is just some major performance and it's all just to be a provocateur because it feels very much like that when you watch it. But there's so much of it when you know he is still going through the underlying psychological thing. It's a, ah. I mean, I feel dirty even talking about it because it feels like this guy is going through some stuff and he needs to have the opportunity to go deal with it. But we're not going to let that happen. We've, we've got the mainstream media that's talking about, oh, gee, he's such, such a crazy guy. We knew he had lost his mind as soon as he put on that red hat. You know, that Make America Great Again hat he was wearing for a little while, a, a few years back. Yeah, that's when the left turned their back on him. Before that, when Ye would have a bout with uh, his mental illness, they would just call him a musical genius. They would just say, oh, well, you know, that's just Ye. It's, it's just a temperamental artist. And occasionally would imagine that he's just being a provocateur. But no. Now it's all Orange Man bad, and of course, yay, bad because of Orange Man. And, of course, when Kanye went and had his little dinner the other day with Donald and brought along his guest, the media attacked Donald for that. Granted, Donald should have known better than to have Kanye, under his current condition, coming down and having dinner with him. He should have known there was no way that was staying private. And... If Kanye says, okay, I'm going to bring some guests with me, since he has already thrown his hat in the ring, already seeking the nomination, his people – you don't even have to count on him. His people should have done the background check to make sure who's who when they're coming in. Do not let the internationally known uber-white supremacist – Come have dinner with you, especially when the left already accuses you of being a racist and an anti-Semite. We pause there for a second to think about the wisdom of that. When you have Al Sharpton, Al Sharpton, Tawana Browley, the, the comments about all the Heimies down at the market, Comments about the Jewish interlopers, uh, the man who literally set the standard of anti-Semitism in the 70s. One of the most well-known anti-Semites from back in the day, back when being an anti-Semite meant something. Al Sharpton gets to call you out and gets to say, he knew who was coming to dinner. Of course he knew. 
Well, you know, the only thing to be scarier, Al. Oh, I'm sorry, Reverend Sharpton, although I have no idea who reveres Al. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that would be worse is to have Al Sharpton come to dinner. It was a bad move. Not just because he should have known, not just because his people should have known, but because the media is not going to let it go. They still want to tell the lie about the Charlottesville speech. You know, there are, there are very fine people on both sides. Yes, Donald Trump made that statement. He said those words, but not in that context. He wasn't talking about the white supremacists with the tiki torches. He was talking about the locals that actually liked having a statue of Robert E. Lee, hometown historical figure, in the town square. It was a big piece of their history. They wanted to preserve it. There were fine people that simply want to remember their past. Those were the people Trump was talking about. And most of the people that tell the Charlottesville lie, they know. Like everybody else on the left, they count on you being dumb. Fortunately, I know if you're listening to this show, you're not dumb. I probably don't even have to waste my breath telling you this. But I do anyway, just in case somebody new accidentally stumbles in. <laughs> and occasionally, uh, some of the folks are like, oh, Tim, I'm so tired of hearing you say the same things. I'm going to put my fingers in my ear, uh, much like the producer of the show is doing or was doing just a moment ago. <laughs> and, and rightfully so, Doug, rightfully so. I get it. But it's just here we go once again talking about the media playbook. They're going to make this connection, and they're going to blow it up out of proportion because, well, here's what's really happening. Does Kanye West actually hate Jews? I think he's made it pretty clear he probably does. I don't think this is a case of his mental illness making him just say things that he doesn't mean. I think it's just removing the barriers where ordinarily he would know in polite society, we don't say these things, Kanye. You can feel it all you want to, but you keep it to yourself. Now, the other thing. Besides the media trying to say, okay, well, he's so bad, Ed, he's one of those guys. And by those guys, they mean conservatives. They, they really want to paint Kanye West as a conservative and then paint the rest of us conservatives as being just as anti-Semitic as the things that Kanye's been saying. But what makes that worse is that there's some folks that claim a certain level of conservatism a certain passion for free speech that are trying to defend the things that Kanye said. I even uh, saw, I, I didn't see, I received an email from Andrew Torba. Now, for those of you who do not recognize that name right off the bat, that is the founder and CEO of Gab, one of the social media platforms that's gotten a a bad name in the past. They've been called anti-Semitic in the past. Got to say, I haven't seen very much of that over there. But I got an email that came from Andrew, because as a person that also participates on the Gab platform, they often do this. But the email says, pray for yay. And not only does he defend what Ye says, but he basically says that this is the work of God. Get a little nervous when people try to say that God wants people to be anti-Semitic. 
But here's the email, and I wanted to read it to you verbatim because it's relatively short, and I'm afraid I don't do it justice if I just describe it. So I'm going to quote it here, and if Andrew doesn't like me quoting uh, these emails, he'll just need to stop sending them to me because obviously this was for public consumption. It says, God often uses the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways to accomplish his will, and as wild as it might seem, God is using Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, for a big purpose. Now, he put all that in bold, by the way. I have no doubt of this in my heart based on what I've seen and heard from the man over the past few months. Now, that's the kind of starting point that makes you think, where exactly is Andrew going with this? Because obviously, he sent this out early this morning. So he had already seen the appearance on Alex Jones by this point. Anyway, I'll continue. God can use anyone he wants in order to accomplish his will. We don't get to pick and choose. He does. We need to have faith and pray for everyone involved in what God is doing through Ye right now. Pray for a host of angels to surround and protect Ye and those around him. Pray for the Holy Spirit and give them discernment and wisdom. Pray that many people will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through Ye's immense cultural influence on the youth. Pray that people will look beyond the attacks of the enemy to destroy and defame him. Pray that people will see what is going on is much bigger than politics. It's spiritual warfare. I believe that Ye demonstrated the love of Jesus Christ today on InfoWars, which extends to all people. It's unthinkable and sad that many Christians are failing to understand this basic biblical concept and are once again taking the lying media headlines at face value. How many times do we need to learn this lesson? The red media is not our friend. All they do is lie, misrepresent, and fabricate to form fear and drive people away from truth. Christ's love and forgiveness extends to the beggar, the stealer, the murderer, and the tyrant. The love and salvation of Jesus Christ is open to all. That was my takeaway from watching Ye interview on InfoWars today in full as it aired live. If you take the time to ignore the clickbait headlines, set aside the programmed emotional responses that have been drilled into your brain for decades and sit down and listen to the man speak for the full interview, I think you'll come to the same conclusion. Either Jesus said so or Jesus said no. Ye has spoken extensively about the problem of sin in our society. He talks about the need for our leaders to uphold Christian values, not Zionist ones. He repeatedly glorifies Jesus Christ and demonstrates humility as well as a yearning to obey God. He said that we need to come home to Christ as a nation and that as God's people, we are the church. 
all of this overshadowed any clickbait headlines you're going to read about the interview. Yay is a master marketeer. He knows what he's doing. He's getting all eyes on him so we can point all eyes to Christ and tell the truth. It's so obvious to me because I employ the same exact strategy. Ye understands that controversy is attention. Attention is influence. Influence is power. Ye is using the influence and talents that God has given him to speak the truth and glorify Jesus Christ. You may not agree with the way he's doing it, but that's exactly what he's doing. As we have these conversations with our friends and families about the taboo, but truthful topics being discussed right now, we have to remember that not everyone knows as much as we do. We need to have patience and empathy with people as they wake up to the reality and logically do not get into fights with family members or friends and do not destroy relationships over these subjects. Meet people where they are. Approach it in love and kindness, but speak the truth boldly. As ye is demonstrating to us all. Alright, then he just finishes up with, as usual, God bless Andrew Torba. Uh, Jesus Christ is King of Kings. And he does that. Now, Here's the problem with that response. Not only is it a full-throated defense of exactly what we saw, and he acknowledges that he had seen it and saw the entirety, but there is just enough actual truthful statements in there that makes the whole thing sound reasonable. Now, Andrew, I know the odds of you listening are pretty slim, but if you hear this, I don't disagree with the basic premise of what you're saying, but at the end of the day, Yay is not bringing glory to Christ. Yay is going through a mental breakdown. That's where he's at right now. And instead of treating it like something that needs to be defended, we need to actually show actual compassion and treat him as if he needs some help because he does. It's that simple. If you're someone who's been accused of being anti-Semitic, if you're not afraid of being called that again, say what you want to say. But rather than simply defending Ye, who, by the way, is one of your bigger competitors now since he's uh, well, I'm not sure if it's taken into effect yet, but he has in agreement purchased Parler. Uh, he's also a guy that's taking with him a lot of baggage. This is a guy who's had issues from the start. If you'll remember, you know, over the course of the last 10 years, we've had lots of opportunities to talk about Kanye West. Everything from George Bush hates uh, black people to Taylor Swift needs to give up her award because there was somebody else that deserved it all the way up until he decided to put on a red hat. And then suddenly there were a lot of populists who suddenly believed in him as a uh, as a ooh he's he's a celebrity that's on our side. He 
like Elon Musk, like several other folks that if we stop and take the time, we could list. They're celebrities who found themselves no longer neatly fitting into the boxes that celebrity status demands. They are not conservatives. Yea, may have had a miraculous conversion to Christianity. I'm not in a position to judge his heart. I can't tell you about that. I can tell you that it's not particularly Christian to say the things that he's been saying about the Jewish people. Now, I understand the historical rationale between, we'll, we'll diplomatically call them hostilities, between certain sects of Christianity and uh, our Jewish friends. There's a lot of reasons why some people don't particularly like them, but most of those are based on tropes as opposed to reality. I have a hard time believing, Andrew, that God is using Ye right now to glorify Christ when all he's really doing is attacking Jews and talking about how much he loves Hitler. You can make an argument that Hitler wasn't necessarily wrong about everything that he did. You might even occasionally hit on a point where that's an accurate statement. But at the end of the day, there's very little tolerance for that because what he did on the evil side of the scale far exceeds anything he ever did that wasn't evil. And then let's also take the obvious here. When you have three people on a panel, and Alex Jones seems to be the calm mediator out of the group, then you've got a problem. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take the mid-hour break just a little early, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll change topics on the other end, because that's really about all I've got to say about Ye. Uh, just keep in mind, the left is going to come after him, and the left is going to come after us trying to attach us to him. And uh, what I want for Ye is for him to get the help he needs. And then if he still wants to be uh, anti-Semitic, that's between him and Jesus. They, they'll have to take that up. Doug, take away. Here we go. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Derek Kenny, and you're listening to Tap Into The Truth. long ago, state and federal agencies in Wyoming threatened to punish a Christian organization for hiring Christians. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook being brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. If you patronize an Indian restaurant, most likely you will see Indians on staff. Whenever and wherever I venture into a Thai restaurant, there are mostly Thai owners and staff members. If I were to venture into a Middle Eastern or Islamic establishment, guess what? Middle Eastern or Islamic personnel would be running the place. But recently, the Wyoming Rescue Mission, a Christian establishment, was being threatened by state and federal agencies in Wyoming for daring to hire employees who share the ministry's Christian beliefs. 
the bigoted agencies were taken to court, where they were reminded of the First Amendment, which protects Wyoming Rescue Mission's liberty to hire like-minded believers without being threatened and investigated by leftist government zealots who want to wipe Christian beliefs and good moral standards right out of our republic in order to fundamentally transform the United States into a trash bin of a nation. Attorneys with Alliance Defending Freedom reached a favorable settlement in the case. Thank God. I'm Ron Edwards. Go to theronedwards.com 3 p.m. Eastern weekdays to check out the Ron Edwards American Experience. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Second Skull is a protective headgear company with a patented line of impact-reducing products. At Second Skull, we focus on head protection as our only priority so that we can be the absolute best at it. Second Skull has protection for every sport and for every athlete. These products are patented and proven. Second Skull is a protective headgear company. You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Constitutional Grounds, the hot air roasted coffee that produces a smoother, richer, healthier, and less acidic coffee. Our unique hot air roasted coffee has a most delicious taste everyone is raving about. Because you want the best, Constitutional Grounds is the coffee you want in your cup. Simply go to theronnetwords.com and click on to the Constitutional Grounds coffee display to make your purchase and to be sure to use the RE20 promo code and you will receive a 20% discount. Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup. Ours was the first revolution in the history of mankind that truly reversed the course of government and with three little words, we the people. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts. You're listening to Tap into the truth. Hey, Joe. They say building back better make America great. If that's a wave of the future, all I've got to say. Stick your progress where the sun don't shine. Keep your big mess away from me and mine. If you leave us alone, well, we'd all be just fine. That's right. We would be all just fine. Uh, you know, the federal government needs to just step back and leave us alone. Quick shout out to the Arizona anti-hero hanging out with us in the MeWe chat. Hope to see some more faces jump in there before long and let's have a conversation. I did just drop in a link in the chat room to uh, my most recent article and uh, 
hopefully we'll read a little bit of that to you here tonight before we get done. Want to uh, use this next story as a springboard into that topic, though, because, well, anytime that Hillary Clinton makes the uh, makes the news, I've got to talk about it. I just have to, because now it's fun to make fun of her, especially when she continues to show what an evil, ruthless, unreasonable piece of, well, you know the rest. Anyway, former Secretary of State... <clears throat> former presidential candidate, former senator for the state of New York, former first lady of the United States of America, former first lady of the state of Arkansas. Yes, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Well, she decided that it's time to get out and talk about all those deplorables again. Uh, recently, she was criticizing all the pro-life wins we've been having. Basically, she decided to compare the protection of unborn human life to uh, to those in countries around the world where women's rights have, well, historically, we'll diplomatically say that they've been severely restricted. Does that, that sound reasonable? Anyway, at the Women's Voice Summit, held at the Clinton Presidential Center in Arkansas uh, today, uh, if you're listening live, Friday, Friday, December 2nd, well, Clinton said that the United States was like Sudan and Afghanistan in regards to abortion, saying, quote, it's so shocking to think that in any way we're related to poor Afghanistan and Sudan. But as an advanced economy, as we allegedly are, and, you know, I'm glad she used the word allegedly because under the Biden administration and the several most recent Democratic administrations, even going back to that of her husband, economy hasn't necessarily been great until the Republicans were in charge. Yeah, Bill gets a lot of credit for a booming economy, but if you'll remember, it wasn't until Newt Gingrich and the pact with America was fully in play that America's economy started booming. Anyway, as allegedly advanced as our economy are, on this measure, of course, she's still talking about women's rights and women's freedom. We unfortunately are rightly put with them. Really? Really, Hillary? Rightly put with them? I, I don't recall anybody other than you and those who wish to commit genocide against millions upon millions of pre-born baby humans that anybody even suggests that there's any similarities there. Anyway, she said, quote, this struggle is between autocracy and democracy from our country to places we can't even believe we're being compared to, which again, I'll suggest we weren't being until you said so, Hillary. Uh, in Sudan, abortion is legal if a child was conceived in rape or if the mother's life is in danger, which, by the way, it's legal here in almost all those conditions as well. In Afghanistan, it's only allowed to save the life of the mother. Uh, what other situations should it be allowed in, Hillary? I, I seem to recall not 
that many years ago that even you and Bill were going around uh, saying the old talking point of legal safe and rare. Rare being the most important part there. But, you know, obviously that's not where you're at today and not where you meant to be even then. She continued, of course, we have come a long way on so many fronts. Still talking about women at this point because, you know, we treat women so badly here. We've come a long way on so many fronts, but we are also in a period of time where there are a lot of pushback and much of the progress has been, I think, taken for granted by too many people is under attack literally under attack in places like Iran or Afghanistan or Ukraine, where rape is a tactic of war. By the way, Hillary, just just so you know, that's always been a tactic of war, period. It's ugly. It's not nice. I'm not condoning it. But it's not something that's happening in Ukraine for the first time, okay? I get it. A lot of Democrats are historically ignorant, that's fair. You don't like teaching actual truth. You like teaching fiction instead. Well, you know, 1619 Project, that's history. Mm, yeah, okay. I get it. <sighs> it's a tactic of war. Uh, they're also under attack by political and cultural forces in a country like our own when it comes to women's health care and bodily autonomy. And again, I'll remind you, you're preaching bodily autonomy now, but you've also been preaching, take the jab, take the jab. What about my bodily autonomy? Shut up, says gendered white male. You don't get to talk. Sorry. Uh, every now and then I get a little too far into the mind of Hillary. Very scary place. Very scary. It even gets worse when I start really thinking like Hillary. It's like, what'd you say about me? It'd be a shame if you killed yourself. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Friday night. Forgive me. Anyway, she went on and on and on. She whined about the Dobbs decision and went on and on. And she whined about the Supreme Court because Roe v. Wade was overturned this past summer. But at the end of all this, it was a much ado about nothing. Because you see, what really is going on is right now she, like a lot of the other Democrats, a lot of the other progressive left, know they feel themselves losing the culture war. We are starting to turn the tide, and it is starting with parents reasserting the rights of to be a parent, reasserting our right to control the culture as far as what our children see. You can ask Disney about their big bomb of a movie released this past weekend. Oh, we're going to have uh, black gay teenagers. Uh, that should be a huge success. What? Nobody went to see it. You're a bunch of bigots. Now, we're just done with Disney telling parents that they don't get to be parents. <laughs> I'm not real sure what it is Doug's doing over there with that. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, uh, he's having fun. Blinking, blinking light. Okay, so we're we're blinking lights in the control room right now, and uh, okay, there you go. <laughs> anyway, they they feel it. So Hillary's having to do this, and they're scared. 
They're scared. And they should be, but not for the reasons that they want to tell you there. Now, let me, uh, let me give you some of this piece that I wrote. Uh, you can find it at iPatriot right now. I will put a link in the show description for those of you listening to the podcast after the fact. And I have dropped a link in the uh, chat room at MeWe. So if you want to hop in there real quick, uh, because I do have hyperlinks to uh, everything that makes sense here as well. But in case you were under a rock or hanging out in a cave, the U.S. Senate passed a bill named the Respect for Marriage Act on November 29th, 2022. This bill, which is most likely easily going to pass in the lame duck house session and then make its way to Joe Biden's desk all before December 9th. I would be very surprised if he hasn't signed it before next Friday. It's said to provide federal protections for same-sex marriages as it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, which was, of course, the Clinton-era law that legally defined marriage as being between one man and one woman and permitted states not to recognize same-sex marriages from other states. It gave them that exception. One of the few uh, laws at the federal level that says you don't have to do everything the other states are doing. Anyway, the bill, as currently written, and I say that because it does still have to go to the House, and who knows what they're going to do over there, but the bill, as it's currently written, would not force states to allow same-sex couples to marry under the uh, Supreme Court's 2015 uh, uh, Ogilfell versus Hodges decision. That's kind of the standard where we're at right now. It would, however make it so that any person, quote, acting under the color of state law must fully recognize marriage between two people in another state and that the federal government must recognize marriages if they were valid in the state where the marriage occurred. So in simpler terms, if Obergefell should someday be overturned and some states then decide to no longer recognize same-sex marriage, those states would still be required to recognize the same-sex marriages from the other states. You know, the people of California getting to decide for the people of Alabama. Anyway, Democrats and activists have been saying that the bill's necessary, which they did so in an act of political theater, as they were kind of desperate to have any issue other than the economy going into the midterm elections. They needed something to talk about. Get the lefties energized, because if we're only talking about the economy, we're going to lose. And, well, they got enough people thinking about something other than the economy, I guess. Anyway, the Democrats and the activists, they jumped into full-blown fear-mongering that the Republicans are, quote, coming for the gays. They did that, of course, after the release of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. In his concurrence, Thomas stated the court should reconsider its decisions in Griswold versus Connecticut, Lawrence versus Texas, and the Obergefell versus Hodges, which established a right to contraception right to privacy in the bedroom, and the right to same-sex marriage 
respectively. Now, Justice Thomas said this on the same grounds as the Dobbs decision. Plainly put, the Constitution does not give the federal government any power to regulate any of these issues, and it is clearly stated in the Tenth Amendment that any authority not delegated specifically to the federal government falls to the states and or the people. So, do LGBTQ activists have reason to worry about the fate of same-sex marriage? Well, sort of, but not really. Let me start by expressing my personal view on the issue, which a lot of conservatives don't like. I take a lot of flack on this one because they want to get into the minutiae and they want to get into the semantics. But, you know what? They're just my thoughts. That's how I look at it. So you're welcome to disagree. I'm not going to be mad at you if you do. That's fine. Just don't be mad at me because we disagree. Let's, let's agree to disagree and move on. Anyway, I'm opposed to the Obergefell decision for the exact same reason that Justice Thomas cites in his concurrence on the Dobbs case. It is a state's rights issue, period, in a discussion. The federal government has no jurisdiction to interfere. I am, however, not opposed to same-sex marriage. My reasoning being there that we're not actually talking about marriage. We're not. What we are talking about is government-recognized civil unions. You can call it marriage if you want. You can call it a civil union. You can call it sunshine on a stick. It doesn't matter what you call it. It remains government-recognized civil union. And as such, states have every right to define what constitutes those unions, what you have to do to qualify. True marriage... Well, that's a spiritual bond that no government entity has any authority over. None, nada, forget about it. They got no power. So then back to the question of the fate of same-sex marriage. Well, it's pretty clear from the way the so-called Respect for Marriage Act is written that the bill's authors did recognize the state's rights issue, at least to some extent. Remember, the bill does not force states to allow same-sex couples to marry. Now, I would also point out at this point in time that a Supreme Court that would overturn Obergefell would most likely overturn respect for marriage, too, on the very same grounds. It's unconstitutional, which also, by the way, happens to be true of the Defense of Marriage Act for the exact same reasons. However, the Democrat lawmakers know that if made law, which it's pretty much a done deal at this point, respect for marriage would add an extra legal buffer between overturning of Obergefell and returning the issue back to the states, mostly because it's not very likely that both would be overturned at the same time. Respect for marriage buys the federal government time to cling to that extra constitutional power and it allows the Democrats to claim that they were fighting for the LGBTQ community the whole time. Time that they would hope would allow them an opportunity to change the makeup of the court back in favor of the leftist activists, by the way. So what we're seeing there actually is political manipulation at its best. The Democrats know that it's unconstitutional from the very beginning. They get to play the hero for a constituent group. 
They get to cast their political adversaries as villains, and they know that most of those elected adversaries either lack the stones for the fight because someone will call them names, or they kind of like the continued assault on the constitutional limits that are meant to constrain the federal government because they get more power too, don't they? They also, back to talking about the Democrats, they also know that it would take years to mount a serious challenge to the law. They could use that time as part of the defense of the law. It's been the law for such and such time. Why change it now? It's been settled. How many times have you heard Roe v. Wade was the law of the land for 50 years? They will even argue about who has standing to challenge the law. But there's more going on with respect for marriage, making it unconstitutional, than just the state's rights issue. Religious liberty. You see, religious liberty is a constitutionally protected right as defined in the First Amendment. And religious liberty is being stripped away from individuals in the bill. The bill does offer some low-level protection to you when you're at church and synagogue or even at your mosque, but none whatsoever to individuals, organizations, or other religious entities outside of church. You're no longer allowed to live your faith. If you're a baker and you don't want to make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding, too bad. Do it or Colorado can find you into oblivion and take your business license. You run a Christian adoption agency and believe that you should only place children in homes where the parents are married and are a man and a woman? Well, you're a bigot and New York should shut you down. Senators Marco Rubio, James Langford, and Mike Lee all offered amendments to the bill that would have addressed the religious liberty concerns, each one to a different extent, and quite frankly, I think Mike Lee's was the best overall, but all of them were voted down. You wouldn't be wrong to question why none of these amendments could be added to the bill if your true intent is to protect someone's rights, since Congress cannot constitutionally speaking, prioritize one person's rights over another person's rights. You remember the old adage, my rights end where your rights begin and vice versa? So what is the intent? Now, I've already alluded to multiple reasons why the American political left would want to make the so-called Respect for Marriage Act the law. But in the end, at least for a good number of the political players in this fiasco, it boils down to control. Our system was intentionally built to be adversarial and to require debate, discussion, and achieve a certain level of agreement before advancing a bill to its next step to becoming a law. This process is often criticized as being inefficient. Oh, they're bogged down. They're not getting anywhere. They're not making anything happen. You see, that too is part of the point. Because without safeguards, without stopgaps, without speed bumps, it would be far too easy to use any emergency as an excuse to remove individual liberties from people. The elected could work their manipulatory magic on the populace to convince them to vote away their freedoms in the name of some sort of protection or 
safety. Part of that manipulation requires the conditioning of the American people, the mental conditioning. Many Americans have already succumbed to conditioning. They've surrendered their freedom of expression to the woke mob to avoid being canceled. They've abandoned their bodily autonomy to travel freely or avoid losing their jobs. A once fiercely independent and liberty-loving people have in large numbers lost their value of face and apparently their ability to think critically. For the proponents of the Respect for Marriage Act, when this bill becomes law, it is another opportunity to convince Americans that Congress has no limits on what it can regulate, even in your personal life. It conditions less than well-educated Americans into thinking that passing a law can trump the Constitution. It's even one more chance to make people believe that Congress can strip people of their rights in the name of equity, despite the fact that that word doesn't mean what they want it to mean. It's just another step of control through conditioning, manipulation, and no shortage of gaslighting. So do LGBTQ activists have reason to worry about the fate of same-sex marriage? Well, if the system worked as it should and the issue got in front of the Supreme Court, both Obergefell and Respect for Marriage would be struck down. And you might be tempted to say that that gives the activists good reasons to worry, but that ignores a lot of facts on the ground. So let's start with the fact that there are currently no court cases at all in the pipeline that would possibly bring Obergefell before the high court. And, of course, while that could change, it's important to remember that even when the system's working like it should, there are many legitimate reasons why the case still may not get before the Supreme Court. Let's continue with the fact that the current slate of justices are not likely to overturn Obergefell as they said exactly that in the Dobbs majority opinion. It was only Justice Thomas who said that the court should revisit the other cases. And let's follow that up with the fact that even if the Supreme Court did finally, at some point in the future, send the matter back to the states, there is minimal political will at the state level to undo the current status quo. Even the most Christian conservative of states would have a difficult time changing the present policies. At best, some would want to change the terminology back to civil unions, and I've already explained why that's a distinction without a difference. So no, there is no reason for LGBTQ folks to be worried. I would actually remind them that being pro-Constitution is not being anti-LGBTQ. That being pro-states' rights is not being anti-same-sex marriage. And I would especially like to remind them that believing Chuck Schumer, when he tells you that you need him and the Democrats to protect you, well, that's unwise at best. <laughs> that's being very diplomatic. But you see, there are groups of Americans who should be worried about the Respect for Marriage Act. Religious Americans. People who believe that as a matter of faith, that marriage is defined as being between a man and a woman. 
And that, by the way, includes way more than just the Christians who are likely to be the primary targets of state-level punishments as a result of the legislation. We're talking about our Jewish friends. We're even talking about American Muslims. People who believe that they should not be compelled by popular culture or government mandate to participate in activities that conflict with their deeply held personal beliefs should be outraged by this bill because their liberties are being infringed upon. In truth, all Americans should be enraged because no American should ever be told by our government to just sit down, shut up, and do what we tell you to do. I would like to think that the LGBT, LGBTQ community would understand that sentiment. Obviously, Doug understands it as he's now picked up his American flag and is waving it. And we're going to have to start taking this show video. <laughs> we're just going to have to. You guys are missing the great antics. <sighs> All right. We've got about uh, two minutes before we need to take the break. That, of course, is the entirety of the article. And I had written that a couple of days ago, uh, tweaked it, got it out there. I suspect at some point, based on my conversation with Ken Crow, that you should see that popping up on Conservative Daily Briefing as well, if you'd rather go there. It's not up yet today. Uh, Ken said that he would have it there today, but then I haven't heard from Ken at all today, so I don't know if he's under the weather or, or what's going on with him. I do hope everything's well. I know he got hung up on uh, a honeydew list the day before, which kept it from going up then. Uh, imagine that, us married men having to do stuff. It, it has gotten the way of many a guest on this show, by the way, and I fully understand <laughs> i too am married yeah uh, but right. but you think there's gonna be a do honey list never never <laughs> uh yeah it doesn't work that way doug i don't think it ever has uh if it does i would in fact if anybody out there knows of a instance where that's the case please let us know <laughs> all right yeah again we're looking at a lot of stuff going on out there, and there's so many different crazy things to get to. But the fact that we are winning on this forefront is a good thing. But what concerns me more than anything about the Respect for Marriage Act is the fact that we had 12 Republicans that did not stand up for religious liberty. And I get it if you don't want to be called a name. But why could we not have at least tacked on one of these amendments that would have offered some level of protection? When we were guaranteed our right to follow our faith, that meant we were guaranteed our right to live that faith. It's not an excuse to behave badly. It's just the opposite, in fact. And if you run across somebody that's violating the basic tenets of Christianity, you have the right of association. If somebody's in a business and they won't do a certain thing that you think is wrong, you just take your business elsewhere. And their business will suffer or thrive based on how that action takes place. 
we've got to get back to treating each other like Americans. Let's go ahead and uh, reset for the hour, ladies and gentlemen. Hour number two with Mark Mix will start after uh, after this break. Don't go anywhere. Right back. State plan taught to praise the little man, told that union saved the working class. He was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun, warned about the greed within the mass. They met beneath the moonlit sky, a college party drunk and high, and when they had degrees, they said their vows. He he couldn't say when, he couldn't say how, he couldn't say why, she was different in his eyes. Tim Tapp, host of Tap into the Truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you love me too, because I definitely love you guys. And it is the holiday season. We are. Uh, Definitely, definitely in the time of brotherly love. And, uh, well, what else can you say? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome back to the show the president of the committee and the foundation for uh, the National Right to Work and the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. We're talking about Mr. Mark Mix. Mark, first and foremost, thank you so much for uh, joining us once again. I appreciate your time, and I really appreciate the fact that I get to, to claim that I've got a guest that you will often see with Neil Cavuto and Glenn Beck and on Fox and Friends. It, it really uh, burps my profile up a little bit. Well, Tim, thanks a lot. It's good to be on with you, and and, and obviously there's lots to talk about, and, and uh, it's a really interesting time, that's for sure. It is indeed. Now, uh, obviously, we had going in before the midterms the pressing threat of uh, rail traffic being shut down. We're talking about freight across the train lines, something that would literally bring our economy to a halt if that had happened. And we saw uh, Joe Biden rush to the rescue and save us all, which actually all they did is they managed to force a framework into place that basically said, okay, you're going to pass the framework, then you're going to vote on it after the midterms, and uh, then you can't really strike at least until after everybody's had a chance to vote and save as many Democratic <laughs> offices as possible. And I seem to recall telling people that that was the case. And then here we are. Uh, this past week, we went from, again, the looming threat of a strike to now – the other downside of collective bargaining, when government decides they're going to 
take control over your industry, they get to tell you what you're going to accept and what you're not. So all of a sudden, being in a union doesn't necessarily get you what you wanted. So first, you, of course, being right to work, right off the bat, uh, love to get your thoughts on how this strike was potentially brewing. And then we'll discuss a little more after the fact of what the intervention here really means for uh, working Americans. Yeah, Tim. I mean, you you framed it up perfectly, and your instincts were right about it the first time they tried to get this thing through. You, you know, September 15th, Joe Biden dropped the mic, said we've solved the problem. Uh, my, my administration has worked on this. My people, he keeps everything is his, his, his. But, uh, yeah, they had it all solved on September 15th. And, and your point is very insightful in the fact that Basically, there's politics involved, and I don't want to shock any of your listeners, but, geez, there was <laughs> politics involved. You know, imagine that, Tim. Um, but you're absolutely right about that. You know, this – basically what happens with the railroad industry is they're covered by a labor policy that was passed almost 100 years ago called the Railway Labor Act. And the contract that they negotiate never expires. There is no expiration date of the contract. It simply gets amended from time to time as issues come up. And basically the way that's handled is the National Mediations Board, which is a federal agency appointed by the president, they're the ones that get the, get the carriers and the unions together, and they start talking about it. The unions will say, well, we need this, and the carriers will say, we need this. And basically they sit down and they talk about it, and it's a negotiation. And there's a designation of whether it's a minor issue or a major issue, and the Railway Labor Act covers those two, the separate, separates those two by how they're handled. And so obviously this was a major issue. Uh, it, this whole debate, this whole amending process started out by crew staffing requirements. The railroads now have, you know, they have such technology that the number of individuals on every train, Tim, has gone from, I think it was five or six, you know, back maybe 50 years ago, down to two today because Basically, we've eliminated the caboose by putting a piece of technology on the end of a train, and it can tell you everything that's happening with every car all the way up to the engine. It reports on the temperature of the wheels on the train and any problems that may exist. And so a lot of the, a lot of the you know, kind of the manpower that used to be part of running a train and get, putting it together and monitoring it as it was traveling has been, been overtaken by technology. So the staffing issue came up, and all of a sudden, the National, Media, National Mediation Board and the Biden appointees basically decided, you know what, maybe we can make really hay if we get this thing into the political season right before the elections. And you, you articulated it extremely well. You knew all about it. And so basically they're supposed to control the negotiations. They said, you know what, we've had enough. We can't do it. And that triggered a very specific process under the Railway Labor Act for how this was going to proceed. So you start with a 30-day cooling off period where the NMB says, okay, we can't do anything else. Then the president is allowed to appoint a presidential emergency board, which he did, and they get 30 days to look at both sides and come up with what they propose to be a tentative agreement. It's not binding, and it's not compulsory. They don't have to take it. But then you have a 30-day cooling, cooling off period after that, and that took us all the way to September 15th or September 14th, actually. And so we were very close to having a strike there if it weren't for the heroics of Joe Biden. I mean, he stepped in and said – Everything's great. We got this presidential emergency board. The union negotiators, and Tim, you made this point. You, you, you basically critiqued it and, and split out what was happening. You had union officials who said, hey, we've got an agreement, and they took it back to the rank-and-file workers, the actual union members they claimed to represent, and guess what? 
a couple of units, one to start and then three more, rejected the tentative agreement because there were other issues that they wanted to talk about. But too bad because the damage that a, a national strike would have done to the economy and, you know, the opportunity for Biden's administration to save, this, save the country once again was just too great of a deal. And so now the Congress has imposed this presidential emergency board recommendation with a few other caveats in it that developed over the course of the last 60 days. And they said, this is the new agreement. So they're setting the, the labor conditions for private industry. You know, obviously railroads are pretty important, but they are private industries. And so to your point, that's what's happening here. And the one story that I think doesn't get told enough is that this, and you just mentioned it, it this is it being imposed on the workers. They can't, there's no recourse here. The, the union officials agreed to this tentative agreement. They took it back to the rank and file. Eight unions approved it, four didn't. But now those four unions that, that rejected what was there now have to basically suck it up and take it because the Congress has imposed it. It's really an interesting story and one that there's a lot of, a lot of detail in the Railway Labor Act that, uh, that played out, you know, kind of interesting for those of us that follow it this closely. Right. Yeah, I do think that it's important that more people understand what's happening, too, because before this event happened, how many people even realized that there was a law on the books that it gives the government this power to regulate whether or not you do this job in this fashion? We get to decide what your benefits are if you can't come to an agreement, because that doesn't really exist in most private industry. Granted, Rail service, when it comes to our freight lines, very important. And there is a vested interest that the government has in order to try and protect the economy at large. But there is some level of debate, understandably, when you have a republic like ours, how much authority the government should have. An interest, yes. Authority, mm, you can make a strong argument. But uh, if there was more of a right-to-work mentality involved here, uh, something like this probably never becomes an issue in the first place, right? Yeah, that's right, Tim. And, and we have to go back in time a little bit to see what government control over the railroads did early on. I mean, basically, we had a very robust railroad system in this country going all the way back to the early 1900s, you know, back actually into the 1800s when they drove the magic spike and, and connected the East Coast and the West Coast. In fact, you know, things were so interesting and, and freight was such a big driver of that young economy. But there was a plan in 1917 called the Plum Plan that was basically going to nationalize the railroads and basically have government control over it completely. But over the course of the next 50 or 60 years, there was a very robust and competitive market in the railroad, in railroad industry. And as, as government regulation increased and government uh, uh, you know, intervention in, in the business cycle and in commerce increased, the competition began to diminish. Uh, all these, you know, the kind of the minor lines, the, the little branch lines and the small railroads that connected states or cities, and, and they all kind of disappeared. And we're down now to seven what are called class one carriers, the big, the big railroads. And, and, yeah, they control a lot of freight. I mean, if you look at what they did, I think the week ending November 19th was the last statistics that I looked at. But there was something like, you know, 300,000 carloads of, of chemicals and coal and oil and just metal and materials. And then there were another 300,000 containers that were being shipped on trains across the country. So obviously, to your point, the impact on the economy is dramatic. And, and so government has to be involved. But when you think about 
the government exerting the type of control over an industry that they've done here and seeing it right before your eyes and watch it take place on the Senate floor and the House floor and then the politics of the president standing up and saying we've, we've saved the country, um, you wonder just how big government's going to get, Tim. And you made a good point. I mean, we, <laughs> we're supposed to control the government. The government's not supposed to control us. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think I could have put that any better. Very succinct and uh, very spot on, as is your usual uh, MO, Mark. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is astounding, too, because they want a political victory here. They haven't had very many, and they don't really care who they have to, uh, to hit to get it. They know that the economy has already been a bit of an albatross. Their energy policies have been terrible. Uh, they don't want to discuss the uh, foreign policies, but you can get uh, the foreign policy side of things a lot of Americans can overlook if the economy is good. And right now, I think what the uh, Democrats managed to do is they got fortunate enough that in a lot of the country – while things are starting to turn off sour, it still hasn't gotten bad enough. You're not feeling the pain. Most Americans aren't to the point that they're willing to ignore what they want. We saw a lot of changes in New York at the state level because crime was so out of uh, control there. We saw a lot of California races. It's ordinarily very Democrat. It's uh, still talking about House races at this point. Uh, and these are places that are on the front lines. They get to feel these left-leaning democratic policies the most, and the, these are folks that are all about collectivism. And unfortunately, when they collect all the resources and collect the working pool, they still manage to set themselves apart. And that's something that a lot of the, the rank-and-file voters, the citizens in these states, are starting to feel. But through most of the country didn't hit it that hard by doing this they managed to avoid something that would have been hitting every american in every part of the country very hard because it's not just those raw materials that you were talking about but without certain raw ingredients then certain food items stop showing up in your uh, grocery store shelf and that would have gotten a lot of folks attention in a hurry yeah certainly tim you know one of the points, I think, this idea that they kind of, you know, they kick the can down the road. When you inject trillions of dollars into the economy, I mean, the impact of that has a dramatic and, and immediate impact uh, on the economy. And, and I think in a way, it kind of, you know, it postponed what is an economic reality that's coming based on the Biden policies. I mean, you know, we couldn't, we shut down the oil and gas industry. We shut down the, the fossil fuel industry. We're going to shut down the coal industry if Joe Biden's telling the truth. And all of a sudden, you know, in order to, in order to stop the, the, the increased price of gas, because you, when you limit supply and demand remains the same, we know what happens to prices. It's not that complicated. And it's, it's a good thing it's not, Tim, because then I wouldn't be able to understand it. But you know, when you reduce the supply of something and you still have the same demand, there's only one thing the price can do. It goes up. And so what Biden does is he jeopardizes the security of the nation by drawing down on the strategic petroleum reserves to a point where they at their lowest levels in 45 or 50 years. And when you think about the international situation and kind of the, the sadder, uh, saber rattling across the world, you wonder, you know, are we in a good position because the politics of Joe Biden's election we're moving into 220, you know, 2022, he had to have gas prices come down, even though, you know, 
his facts about the gas prices are a little bit stretched, and I guess we give him the benefit of the doubt because he just doesn't know what he's talking about. But when you think about just that particular play, and then you think about the injection of literally trillions of dollars, and then you think about you know, the other actions that they've taken to kind of postpone or cover up some of the, the real results that are going to come with the policies that he, he and his administration and the Democrat Senate and House passed, you know, over the last two years. You think about Illinois and Chicago, and, or you know, Chicago, Illinois, and you think about California, New York, New Jersey. If it weren't for the American Rescue Plan, those states would be probably close to bankruptcy now. They got bailed out with your money and my money. Um, and basically, the, the states that were in the worst shape got the most help. The states that were in great shape, yeah, well, you guys are okay. You can survive it. But they, this rescue plan, you know, basically saved California. And now you've got a point where, you know, Gavin Newsom, for political reasons, is writing checks to California citizens with our money because, you know, they had a surplus once the taxpayers ponied up and saved his bacon out there. It's just, it really is amazing. And I think your point's well taken. I think there's some hard times coming. And, uh, and Biden knows it. I think the, the, the Congress knows it. Um, but politics is, you know, they'll do anything they can to stay in office and win their next election. But that's what we know. Yeah. As long as you can blame the other guy, you can win. And uh, <laughs> yeah. that's what they'll do. Yeah. In fact, th this whole notion, I, I think a lot of Democrats are happy the Republicans technically took the, the House, even though it's a narrow margin, because they feel like they can win it back with a, a few seats changing hands but they can still blame the obstructionism. They stopped us from uh, having our recovery. And there will be plenty of people that buy into that logic and will vote the other way. But uh, as you pointed out, uh, when you postpone those results, the longer you postpone them, uh, the more it's going to hurt. Uh, we've seen it before in the auto industry. We saw it before in the housing bubble. And uh, we saw it in the dot-com bubble, uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember that far back. Uh, and if you keep postponing and, and ignoring it and you keep trying to find that way to snake past it, eventually when you do have to finally pay the piper, it's going to be far worse. It's a much better idea to just rip the Band-Aid off early, deal with a little short-term pain, and move forward. But uh, I also wanted to, to ask you, Mark, have you ever had any deal? Feelings where somebody was a union member and they ever thought they would face the kind of situation that now these rail workers are facing where they basically have just been told it doesn't matter uh, how you voted. This is just how it is. That, that's not what you expect when you join a union, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, it, well, it's funny you mentioned that, Tim, because we have a case out of uh, Pennsylvania right now. We're representing some employees in a case called uh, Latrobe Specialty Steel in, um, in Pennsylvania. And it's a really interesting situation, but it's one that actually mirrors and is probably worse than what just happened in the railway industry. So we have this, we have this company that's negotiating with the union over a new contract. And the contract, uh, I guess it, it, it probably, yeah, it did expire. And so the union starts negotiating with the, with the employer. They come to an agreement. They present it to the rank-and-file workers, and the rank-and-file workers reject it. They say, no, this is, we don't want this agreement. So the union goes back to the employer and says, oh, man, you know, the, the workers haven't, haven't uh, approved it yet, but we think we can get it through. And in the meantime, the workers, because they're so upset at the union for proposing this agreement that was so bad, they start what's called a decertification process, Tim. And that's when the workers get together to try to throw the union out and basically say, we don't want you to represent us anymore. The union gets wind of this decertification petition, 
and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose the unit, we're going to lose the force dues, we're going to lose the money, we're going to lose the revenue, and so we've got to do something fast. So they sit down with the employer again, and they say, guess what? We are going to agree to the contract that you offered. We're gonna, there's a couple changes here that we got to do, but we're going to basically say we have an agreement. And so in the, in the context of that, Tim, the workers are trying to get rid of the union. The union sees that they're trying to be, be pushed out, and so they go back to the employer and say, whatever you want, we'll sign it. We want an agreement. Needless to say, the union goes back. After they've signed this agreement with the employer, they go back to the employees and say, hey, here's the agreement. We want you to vote on it again. The employees voted down for a second time. But then the union says, well, your vote doesn't matter because we've already agreed to it. And they literally signed a contract with the employer with no start date and no end date. And the reason they did that, Tim, is because if there is a contract in place, then the decertification election cannot take place for up to three years. So basically, in order to stop the employees that they claim to represent from throwing them out of the workplace, they agreed to a contract that had been voted down twice by the rank and file workers and then use that contract to stop the workers from throwing them out of the workplace. Labor law is funny. You saw a little bit where the railroads just, just this week, but that story under the National Labor Relations Act for private sector employees, those are the kind of stories that ought to make headlines. But, of course, the mainstream media, hey, you know what, no harm, no foul. These workers are always, obviously, they're better off with union representation. You know, that's the way, as Joe Biden would say, that's the way we, you know, the middle class is this, and the unions built the middle class. And, I mean, it, the unions in this country, the union officials, not the unions themselves, but the union officials in this country have so much power and so little accountability because of the power they've been granted by government. They can do things like that to those workers in Pennsylvania. And, Tim, that's just one case out of about 225 that we have currently pending on behalf of workers across the country. Yeah, it is amazing that this stuff goes on, but that's just a really uh, a really good example of what happens when you contribute millions of dollars to political campaigns every election cycle. <laughs> it's very helpful. Uh, you send us some money, uh, we'll send some of that money back to you. It's a lovely little ecosystem ripe with, uh, what is the word? Oh, yeah, corruption. <laughs> we'll just call it what it is. Uh, Mark, again, thank you so much for uh, giving up a big chunk of your Friday evening to come talk with us. Always love getting to chat with you. We don't do it frequently enough. It's been way too long since you've been on last time. Glad we had a great uh, topic to cover. Before we go, though, uh, please let everybody know where they can find uh, your efforts. I mean, your, everything that's going on. Share the websites. If you're still inviting folks to follow you on social media, throw out any handles you want to. And then any final thoughts you want to leave us with, uh, feel free to throw that out there as well. Yeah. Well, Tim, thanks for the opportunity to be on. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and talk with your audience about these issues. Um, you know, we don't, the mainstream media tends not to follow this issue as close as they should. They, they have a one-sided view of, of how labor policy works in this country, and it's not the right one. But, it, and I can convince people, if they go to our website, they can look at the cases we're litigating, like the one I just explained in Pennsylvania, and they can find out information about their rights in the workplace at the National Right to Work Foundation's website, which is www nrtw.org. That's nrtw, National Right to Work.org. If they're interested in what's happening legislatively in their state or legislatively in Congress, they can go to the committee's website at nrtwc.org, and they can click on a little map, and they can see the bills we're tracking in their state, and they can see what's, what we're tracking in Congress and uh, get information about what's happening in politics and, and legislation around the country. So those are two good places to get lots more information about right to work and about 
the idea of voluntary unionism, not compulsory unionism. All right. All right. Uh, Mark, again, thank you so much. Uh, obviously, keep up the good work. Godspeed to you, sir. And uh, I look forward to our next opportunity to speak. Thanks, Tim. All right. Ladies, Mr. Mark Mix, he is the president of the National Right to Work Committee and the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. If you are listening to the uh, podcast after the fact, I will have links in the show description so you can go check it out in case you didn't catch all that. But little secret, I would love for you to go back and listen to the podcast again, especially if you're listening on one of the monetized sites. <laughs> no no specific reason. I just need the money, guys. I'm like a lot of you. It, it's the only way I can get money from you guys without you having to send me any. It's, it's great. Just just listen to the ads. All right. We've just got a few minutes before the mid-hour point. So what do you say I uh, call an audible and uh, try to surprise Doug, which it doesn't surprise him anymore because he knows that I'm likely to do it at any point right about now, although I'm sure he's gotten accustomed to me doing it after the mid-hour point as opposed to beforehand. But let's take that mid-hour break right about now, and then we'll hit the home stretch on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is Amy Hallam with Amy's Audios. Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So grab your eggnog and your sip of brandy. Relax, and God bless everyone. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. A candy maker in Indiana wanted to produce a candy that would be a witness, so he made the Christmas candy cane. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, the candy maker began with a stick of pure white hard candy to symbolize the virgin birth and sinless nature of Jesus. Candy maker made the candy in the form of a J to represent the name of Jesus who came to earth as our Savior. It also represented the staff of the Good Shepherd who reaches down into the ditches of the world to lift out the fallen lambs that have gone astray. Realizing his candy was very plain, the candy maker stained it with red stripes to symbolize the scourging Jesus received by which we are all healed. The large red stripe was for the blood shed by Jesus on the cross so that we could have the promise of eternal life. Unfortunately, the candy became known only as a candy cane, a meaningless decoration seen at Christmas time. But the meaning is still there for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that this symbol will again be used to witness the wonder of Jesus and his great love that came down to us remain the ultimate and dominant force in the universe today and forever. Merry Christmas, and may God bless everyone. I'm Ron Edwards. Please check out theronedwards.com. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. These stocks designed specifically for people who haven't started investing yet or don't know how to do it or haven't been trained how to do it or are worried about investing in the stock market that they've never done before. 
It's a robo-advisor system that really simplifies the investing process. In other words, put aside 10% of your salary each week, maybe just $100, and let it go to work in the stock market for you. And what Beanstalk does is basically automate that process for you. Easy to set up. You can transfer directly to your bank account and puts it into exchange-traded funds, which are baskets of many stocks, which gives you diversification. That's the whole key. The idea that you can have this done for you weekly or bi-monthly, but the most important thing is to start now and make it so that you are putting something aside for your own retirement. Beanstalks just makes it really simple to do. You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Constitutional Grounds. The hot air roasted coffee that produces a smoother, richer, healthier, and less acidic coffee. Our unique hot air roasted coffee has a most delicious taste everyone is raving about. Because you want the best, Constitutional Grounds is the coffee you want in your cup. Simply go to theronedwards.com and click on to the Constitutional Grounds coffee display to make your purchase and to be sure to use the RE20 promo code and you will receive a 20% discount. Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup. You're listening to Tap Into The Truth. This is Amy. This is Az. Me too. Sharing the night. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. We are sharing Friday night together. Glad to have you here along for the ride. Thank you so much for being part of the Tap Into The Truth listening family. I, I appreciate you guys more than I can say. I really do. And it uh, it really warms my heart to see Doug in the control room uh, drinking his eggnog and uh, really enjoy it. Let's see, what is that? Uh, Prairie View? Is that what it is? Yeah, Prairie Farms. Uh, that's a good brand. I, I actually uh, I enjoy their eggnog, too, there, Doug. Uh, you never know if you're seeing a regional brand. Sometimes Doug's down in Louisiana. I'm up here in Tennessee, and we do see some of the same stuff. Uh, he's looking for a button. Okay, now he's just going away. Okay, anyway, uh, here we are. We're sharing Friday night together, and I am enjoying it. I hope you guys are as much as I am. Love doing the live today. It, it is a different energy. I, I used to always do live shows. And there is a different energy to it. I got to a point where my schedule got so crazy, though, I couldn't commit to making the scheduled times I had been doing. And that made it difficult. So started recording, doing the shows, uh, different stuff. And uh, we still do that for most of the week. But uh, with this Friday slot opening up like it has... Uh, I would love to be able to just do it live all the time, but I do kind of like being able to cough if I need to, hit the little button and all that stuff, but, you know, love being with you guys live. I just do. I just do. Anyway, what do you say we get back to the show? Uh, obviously, you've been hearing some of this stuff in the play. I would like to remind everybody, still looking for folks to come join the Tap Into The Truth community over at Locals. Uh, you'll get to see... Uh, things that I share there, uh, news stories and the like uh, that I just don't share on the other uh, social media platforms. Uh, you get to see things like uh, the article that I read back in uh, 
the first hour. Uh, got to see that there literally two days before you saw it anywhere else, even before I put it up on the Tap Into the Truth uh, website over tapintothetruth.com under the blog spot. Now it's there. Uh, you can find it over at Locals as well. Uh, you can even leave a little tip if you want to, hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> all of those great things. Uh, just a lot of good reasons. And if people start signing up and actually sign up to become supporters, we'll start doing a lot of uh, supporter-only content over there too. So you'll get access to a lot of stuff that nobody else will know about. So you'll be part of the Cool Kids Club. And hey, who doesn't want to be part of the Cool Kids Club? I mean, you're already listening to the show live at WCET and Columbia, South Carolina, already listening to the show live on the last frequency. And if you're listening to TuneIn.com and you're over on the Vera Network, well, if you're listening to any one of those places, then you're in the Cool Kids Club. So why not make it official as part of Tap Into the Truth as well? That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I say all of that because I'm trying to leave feeling relatively good oh yeah uh, even the call to listen to line which uh yeah that doug is reminding me need to uh to throw that out there too but uh <clears throat> excuse me got to get to a story that isn't going to make me feel that good because it's just it's too important to ignore and i have a sinking suspicion you're probably not going to hear about it in too many other places once again i get to complain about Planned Parenthood. At least in this case, a particular Planned Parenthood executive has, uh, well, he's gotten some folks' attention. See, he said something that is kind of upsetting to a lot of people, and rightfully so. He said that children are sexual from birth. And he was calling for porn literacy lessons for older children. Porn literacy? Dude, what is it? Uh, business not good enough at Planned Parenthood? You want to get young kids uh, uh, hooked on porn so there will be more underage pregnancies requiring life of the mother abortions? Uh, is that it? Is it some crazy messed up effort to both sexualize children and uh, drum up more business? Yeah, it's a heck of a business model if you get away with it, I guess. Uh, anyway, Bill Tavener, Tavener, executive director of the New Jersey-based Center for Sex Education, Planned Parenthood's sex education arm, made the newly unearthed comments all the way back in 2015. We're just now finding out about this, but he said it all the way back then. Wow. Obviously, he wasn't very proud of the comments. Obviously, Planned Parenthood understood that back in 2015, that probably wouldn't play well. Although, you know, you look around at the culture now, they figure at least half of the country is probably going to be all right with it. Now you can get away with it. Let's, let's let that be known. Anyway, Tavener told the interviewer that he was talking to a sexuality consultant by the name of Leslie Walker Hirsch, saying, quote, I think that we unfortunately have in our society an assumption of asexually, asexuality of people with intellectual disabilities. What? See, he's not even talking about children yet. Intellectual disabilities? 
asexuality. Uh, no, there are certain situations, sir, where you should treat everyone asexually regardless. If you're dealing with minors and you happen to be an adult, that's one situation. If you're in a work situation, if you're in an office or you're on a, a factory floor, you should treat everyone around you asexually. That's not a time to be getting your groove on there, my friend. Anyway, Taverner continued saying that, quote, it's a myth that's perpetuated. And really, we are all sexual beings from birth until death. What? From birth until death? I mean, think about it. He's saying basically that newborn over there in the corner, she's asking for it. That's literally what we're getting here. (laughs) Anyway, Planned Parenthood itself echoed this particular sentiment in a guide that they called the Fundamentals to Teaching Sexuality, where they said, and I quote, sexuality is part of life through all the ages and stages. Babies, elders, and everyone in between can experience sexuality. Uh, The question is, are they experiencing it of their own volition? Uh, That should be the first question here. Um, I'm sorry, that that toddler over there, she's not asking for Joe Biden to sneak up behind her and snip her hair, okay? This, This is not a thing that happens. But Planned Parenthood does it. And again, like I said, I think it was part of the business model, guys. I think they want younger kids to be sexualized because it means more abortions for them to perform, more dollars for them to get, and more blood offerings to Moloch, I guess. I mean, I don't want to put nefarious motives behind this. But I kind of think that there has to be nefarious motives here because you are performing acts of evil. And to try to say that children from birth are sexual creatures sounds kind of evil to me. Anyway, in a 2012 interview, Tavener appeared to imply that some pornography exposure could be useful, you know, for older children. I will emphasize the word children there, older children, saying, quote, I think that there's this yearning for information that young people have that hasn't changed. This was in an interview, by the way, which was hosted by a local New Jersey chapter of the National Organization for Women. The National Organization for Women. There's a yearning. We want young children watching porn so they can degrade and dehumanize women, which I thought is what the National Organization for Women said pornography did. Uh, If anybody can correct me uh, if I'm wrong on that one, uh, I will stand corrected, but I'm pretty sure that's what they've been saying for a while now. Maybe I'm just starting to show my age a bit. See, I remember in the 80s and 90s when, when... this was something they said, oh, pornography is bad. Pornography, it, it defiles women. It degrades women. And, well, most of it kind of does. I'm not saying otherwise. And, oh, yeah, uh, Tavender's right. There's a lot of 
older children that would love to watch some porn. There's no question there. doesn't mean it's a good thing. It doesn't mean we're going to stop it either, but it doesn't mean you should be promoting it. There was a time when adults were supposed to, you know, do the adulting. Uh, not this guy. Anyway, back to more of what he was saying in this little interview. <clears throat> Quoting once again. I think that the Internet is a major influence on how people learn about sexuality. Well, no, duh. <laughs> There's access to erotica, pornography. That was very different for young people 30 years ago. Certainly not as accessible. Certainly not as instantaneous. So there's a lot of information that is useful. There's websites that are... Yeah? Yeah? There are websites that are what? Well, about that time he got interrupted by the person conducting the interview, a Rebecca Lubrikant. Really, that's her name. Lubritkin, Lubritkin, sounds like a really unfortunate last name for this particular conversation. Anyway, she interrupted at this point saying, some of it's wrong. See, I told you they didn't like pornography then. Uh, <clears throat> so he responded, yeah, some of it is wrong. A, a lot of it is wrong. But there's good stuff out there, too. Like, you should have saw this one video with these two chicks and this one guy that looked a lot like me. I, 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 he didn't actually say that, but I'm pretty sure that's what he was thinking. <laughs> anyway, it's Friday, forgive me. Um, Davener added that sexting is another issue schools need to discuss with students during sex education. See how he tried to change the subject there real quick? There's a lot of good stuff out there, too. Oh, by the way, uh, let's act like we're adults again. Now, the Planned Parenthood executive made similar remarks just this last year, saying that while those in public health and sexology never wanted porn to be the de facto educator, we need to shift our education. What? We need to shift our education. We actually just need to educate children. And, you know, when it comes to sexuality, that's still probably something that would be best done at home. Now, maybe I'm just a little old-fashioned on that one. Maybe that's just me being silly. I mean, I unfortunately, we know Pornhub is out there, mostly free. We know that uh, you can go to uh, social media sites like Tumblr which actually I still have like a blog thing set over at Tumblr. Uh, so you can find me over there. But there is a ridiculously huge amount of pornography there. Uh, I wasn't aware of it when I first got involved over there, but uh, I've never disconnected uh, the stuff. So you'll pretty much get a lot of postings that are still connected to uh, my other internet stuff. You know, if you want to watch the show, you can go over there and watch porn at the same time. You can listen to it's, you know, multitask. I, I don't think you're going to be able to enjoy the porn if you're listening to the show. But anyway, shift our education. He really said that we never wanted porn to be the de, de facto educator, but we need to shift our education. Back in 2021, in yet another interview, Tabitha said that there is a resistance to discussing pornography with students because some people think that it will encourage them to watch it. Yep, I think it might. 
Of course, Tavender disagrees. He calls that, quote, the same faulty kind of premise as if we teach our uh, as if we teach about condoms is going to make people want to have sex with condoms. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, yet yeah, no. Uh, when you're teaching pubescent children sex ed, they're not going to take the lesson of use the condoms with them. They're just going to take the imagery of how you're teaching them as an excuse to get hot and bothered again. Again, we're talking high hormonal times during these kids' lives. Pornography is still not a good idea. Back to quoting. Getting back to meeting people where they are, if this is what they're doing with their cell phones and their tablets and their laptops, then we need to shift our education and stop doing the banana on a condom and think that, you know, we've done our thing. Although I kind of thought it was the condom on the banana, not the other way around. So I, obviously this guy, either he misspoke, got it slightly out of order. I'd like to think that's the case. Or maybe he needs to shift his education because he's kind of got it backwards. You don't put the banana on the condom. It's the condom on the banana. Tavener said that sex educators need to guide young people's thinking uh, about their values. For example, the ethics of pornography. Yeah, he actually said that. I wish I was making it up. Not a joke. Not a joke. Not kidding. I'm serious. Why does that sound so familiar? <laughs> he said sex educators need to guide young people in thinking about their values. Okay, I will give you that. Uh, let's put the values first. But you want to talk about ethics of pornography? I don't think there's such a thing. I mean, we have discussed the difference between professional ethics and personal ethics on the show before. Usually we're talking about bankers or attorneys in comparison to uh, what personal ethics should be. You know, uh, an attorney has professional ethics that says if you're defending a guilty person, you still offer up the best, most vigorous defense you can. You try to get your very guilty client off uh, scot-free. That's still the job. That is your professional ethic. If you are a banker, your ethics is how do we maximize profit for the bank? It is completely ethical to see that a payment is being electronically transferred in uh, that a deposit's coming in and that payments are going out. And you see that technically the money is, should be in the account to cover what's coming out, but because they're coming in at the same time, the bank just manipulates which one hit first. That's still considered to be ethical banking. Granted, personal ethics would say, okay, they have the money, so let's just take the money out. Let's not cause the overdraft. Let's not collect the fees. But professional bankers, well, that's ethical. Uh, they should have given themselves a day between. I've actually had discussions with bankers about that. Um, probably, if I could get one to come on, we'll talk about that sometime in an upcoming show. But I, I get that there's, what is the professional ethics in the pornography industry? Uh, <laughs> well, we've 
we feel that it's very ethically uh, appropriate that whatever genre of pornography that we're portraying, that we at least uh, act as if it's... I don't understand the ethics of pornography. I, I guess you have to be a leftist, maybe, to get it. Anyway, back to quoting here. He said, quote, That's not to say there's a right answer. I kind of think there is a right answer, and it's whatever the opposite of what you're saying is, sir. But anyway, we need to have conversations about what's missing in porn that may be different in real relationships and that's not to castigate porn does this guy even know what this sounds like oh what's missing in porn oh well you know that scene that I was in that's what's missing Where? come on remember this guy's still talking about conversations with children that he wants to have or he wants sex educators to have. That's what he's suggesting. I don't want to castigate porn, but we need to talk about how porn's different than real life. Come on. Sex education can start as early as kindergarten. Again, according to Tavender. said this in a uh, 2012 interview. In kindergarten, sex education may involve talking about what makes a family or the basics of germs. The basics of germs? Is that your backwards way of talking about STDs? Why? Again, don't expect me to fully comprehend the interworkings of the mind of a leftist. Just understand this is how crazy they are. This, this guy is a professional. This guy is respected in his field. Although it's a field that probably shouldn't be very well respected, but as far as leftists are concerned, hey, you're running a Planned Parenthood uh, facility. We love that guy. Back to quoting. All of that sets the foundations for a basic understanding that is useful for further conversations when we're talking about condoms and when we're talking about pregnancy prevention. Age-appropriate sex education is so important. We need to let our experts guide us. Okay, first part of what he said there, correct. Second part, Incorrect. Uh, who they decide our experts are decidedly the last person we should be trusting. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, anyone? Uh, Dr. Jill Biden, anyone? These people are considered experts in their field. Do you feel like you've been expertly guided by any of them? Now, age-appropriate sex education, that is important. Age-appropriate and actual education. Yes, but you're talking about sex education for kindergartners. That's not age appropriate. Same trouble Disney seems to be having with their uh, their creation here lately. Which, by the way, bringing Bob Iger back, the guy who actually created the current mess at Disney, uh, not a good move for Disney. Uh, he's just going to be able to go back to hiding it a little better when uh, Bob Iger was trying to to undo what had been uh, uh, when Bob Capick had been trying to undo the damage that Iger had done previously. <sighs> yes, age appropriate. Yes, experts grade it. No. So anyway, Monica Klein, former Planned Parenthood sex educator said that Planned Parenthood clearly has a distorted view of sexuality in children. 
really? <laughs> Quoting here, the pornification of our children by Planned Parenthood pays homage to the father of sex education, Alfred Kinsey, who claimed children are sexual from birth after sexually abusing infants and children for his research. So, uh, you know, going to have to give a hat tip to uh, Miss Klein here. Monica's on, on task so far. The sex ed industry funded in large part by our government, U.S. taxpayer dollars, your money, not theirs, going to good use. It's adopted this deprived belief, depraved belief, not deprived, depraved, pushing this twisted thinking into vulnerable populations since the 1970s. Now, Monica, Miss Klein, she called for the government to cut funding for Planned Parenthood and for parents to, quote, wake up and get them out of the schools in their own communities. Tavener, he's worked for sex education field since at least 1995. That's according to his LinkedIn page, by the way. In 2014, he advocated for sex education at a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill. Last year, he expressed his view that society has a a puritanical, anti-sex, erotophobic kind of orientation about the topic of sex. We need to recognize that a lot of folks are driven by fear. Tavender said that in the same 2021 interview. I want you to think about that for a second. Erotophobic? Now, I, I look around at our very decadent society, our culture at large at the moment. Erotophobic is the last word I would use. Whether you're watching HBO or Cinemax or whether you're perusing one of the social media sites that has a few less restrictions – we're a long way off from being erotophobic. Images of sexuality are way too easy to come across. Our children are exposed to it in ways that they should never be. We're a long way off from the Puritans, and we're certainly nowhere near being anti-sex in our culture. We live in a time, literally, where everybody on the left is trying to shout their abortion. And when somebody like myself comes around and says, hey, guys... Maybe, just maybe, murdering a bunch of pre-born baby humans is not a good thing. That's not anti-sex. That's just promoting responsibility during your sexual activities. What you do in your bedroom, that's your business. I don't want to get involved there. And I don't want you to make me get involved by taking my taxpayer dollars to finance any of it. That seems reasonable. You know what else seems reasonable? If I wrap things up right about here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. As always, I appreciate it. Doug, take it away, my friend. Don't take my Definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly... 
Use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. Hey, Joe. Using both hands Founders knew the second amendment Was the final one to keep To hold our other rights intact So we'd never become sheep Stalin, Hitler, Maloney, and Pol Pot They told us things that you never forgot Is using both hands. Well, I prefer the three oh eight to the tiny two to three. Gives me more than a thousand yards to protect my family. Is using both hands.